Today, we have heard readings about the problem of evil and its impact on hope. The reading suggests that contrary to what we may think, evil is an intrinsic part of the field, or of the world, or even of ourselves. And it can't be controlled. What then should our response be? Let's see. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah told the exiled and traumatized people of Israel, the victims of the evil that was the Babylonian captivity, that the time of wailing was over. They had been strangers in Babylon long enough. They had waited in vain for some Messiah to come and eradicate their captors, but now it was time to find hope again. Your God reigns, Isaiah said. He then composed words which he put in the mouth of God and sang them to the Israelites. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do not fear, I am with you. Is there any God besides me? There is no other rock, I know not one. The great Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann makes a point about Isaiah saying this. Isaiah was, you know, the glorious poetic prophet. Here's a prophet saying this to that force of nature, Nebuchadnezzar. That took unbelievable chutzpah. What Isaiah says is that Nebuchadnezzar will fall because he is full of power with no mercy, because he believes himself to be the ultimate source of everything in the world. Here is what Isaiah then says to the Jews to get them to listen to him and to listen to him with hope. He puts words in God's mouth as though God were talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. This made sense to the Jews. That's what it looked like to them. But it was a big message about why the wicked fail. They get so wound up in their own power that they trip themselves up. As you know, and as I've said, Nebuchadnezzar was a very smart but ruthless military strategist and engineer who destroyed Jerusalem in 597. He and Babylon did fall, as you remember, to Cyrus 57 years later, not very long in biblical time. And it was Cyrus who let the Jews go home. I'm, I'm making this point not to belabor Middle Eastern history, but to demonstrate that in this great story of our heritage, it is true that we have lived as strangers and aliens. We have been enslaved and disenfranchised. We have been refugees and immigrants. And yet, in the end, we have also witnessed the downfall of our captors. The death of the wicked, as it were. Nebuchadnezzar's own narcissistic self-worship led to his ultimate failure. Evil is born of death and leads to death unlike the Spirit of God. 600 years after this episode in our history, a man named Saul had an intense conversion experience, perhaps a result of an ecstatic vision. This Saul suffered from epilepsy, and he was a moody and charismatic guy given to trance-like states of ecstasy, maybe related to a seizure. He wanted nothing more than to be free from all the desires of life so that he could spend more time in this ecstatic visioning. Because for him, and for his contemporaries, 
evil came from following the impulses of the body, of the flesh, as he says in today's reading. The impulse of the body for, for power, for greed, for lust, for adulation. His conversion led him to believe that the magic and mysticism of God were fundamental to the life of the early Christian. In contrast to the evil impulses of the body, the mysterious workings of the spirit flowed through all believers, rendering them saints and pulling them away from the needs of the body. At that point, they were all connected to each other, spiritually and in every other way. Paul, like Isaiah, urged his listeners to hope, in much less poetic language, but with similar courage. Paul encourages listeners to believe in the magic of the Spirit in the unknowable working of God to bring about change. He urged his listeners to see all of creation as waiting in hope for God, not assuming that they already knew the outcome. And for him, this kind of hopeful waiting signified our willingness to be acted upon by God, as opposed to our willingness to tell God what to do about it. What happens to people who have been in the grip of evil too long is that they develop the idea that there is nothing they can do about it, and that they already know what will happen if anyone, even God, tries. But for Isaiah and for Paul, this waiting with hope is the way that we can overcome our preoccupation with evil and death, despite all the ways that we tell ourselves that we could really control it if we just found the right approach. Israelis in Babylon were deadened by the oppression of their captors. Jews in the first century were likewise deadened by the oppression of Rome. We can hardly know what that was like, but we did, we did have an experience on 9-11. That experience was a huge blow to our security and our belief that our God reigned. That day awakened in many people a sense of dread and mistrust that they had never had and never anticipated. And what followed from that, that horrible experience, that direct contact with evil here in our country in, was the turbulence of war, the surge of religious intolerance, the economic downturn, and now huge, huge problems with the borders and with the flooding of our country with the persecuted people from our neighbors to the south. All of that has created in us a deep insecurity about our sense of ourselves as a chosen people. This is not supposed to happen to the people of God, is it? In the Gospel, we hear the last of the solar stories about the Kingdom of Heaven. Next week we'll be off to the mustard seed and the pearls. But today we're still with the sower. And today's story is about the noxious weed Zizania, sown by an enemy of the farmer in the field. Zizania, or Darnell, is fatal to cattle and also to people. So it's not wise to harvest it with the wheat, lest the kernels mix together and kill people. On the other hand, it grows and looks like wheat, so it's tough to tell the difference. And as you know, it's possible to pull out the good with the bad. So the farmer is stuck. Everyone in that story believed that something had to be done about the bad Zizania. 
But what Jesus says about that is that the farmer or the church or the rest of us don't really need to do anything about the field of life because the grain will grow by itself and at the end divine justice will burn the toxic grain with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many people are bothered by this kind of violence in the gospel because we are not used to hearing that angels will throw people into the fiery pits. Perhaps we could see it from a different angle, though. This is a parable about how the kingdom of heaven actually works. Perhaps it is saying that if we do give up our own lust for power, our desire for control, and condemn our bodily weakness, as Paul would have seen it, and wait with hope for God, who works on us in mysterious and unknowable ways, the toxic weeds will take care of their own destruction. Hoist by their own petard, as it were. It happened that way with Nebuchadnezzar, after all. Perhaps we could imagine a world in which if we allow the wild and magical working of God to infuse us with life and peace, if we allowed ourselves to believe that God will work in us, if we only wait, wait, and listen, we might, like the Israelites, find that evil arranges its own downfall. We, as you know, are in the midst of a heartbreaking human crisis as tens of thousands of children pour across our borders seeking sanctuary here. It is estimated that 90,000 children will come in this year. We ourselves, on the other hand, have barely recovered, barely recovered, maybe not recovered, but barely, from a severe economic recession. We are facing grave illness in our environment that we ourselves might be seen as numb, as deadened by our internal disillusionment after 9-11. We have had trouble finding our way back to the sense that we are really still the holy people of God. And we've had so many severe disagreements in our own Episcopal Church among ourselves about the institution of marriage, the plight of immigrants, the deployment of military personnel, and these Disagreements, while they are very worthy of debate and reflection, are so fraught. They are so fraught with anger and mistrust. People leaving churches, churches leaving the church. It's terrible. The ferocity and disrespect which characterizes this easy base is a symptom, I think, of the blow to our sense of rightness in the world that we had for 200 years. Our sense of belonging to God. We might say that we had overstepped our own boundaries and had thought of ourselves as too godlike, and that's how we got into so much trouble, but that is a sermon for another day. I am saying that we, the Episcopal Church, have had an experience of exile like the rest of the country, and that we are really in it and having trouble getting back together effectively. However, in this church, in the Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, as you all know, we are trying to speak to each other about what we really believe through the use of small group discussion. We are trying to speak to each other about what it means to each of us and to all of us here as a group to be the holy people of God and to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth. Bless. Let all of us open our hearts to the extreme possibilities of God working in our midst. Let us forget what we think we know. 
and listen to what the Spirit has to say. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.